thank you very much, Elspeth, uh, for the uh, kind invitation. It's, it's great to be here. Um, and um, I'm very happy about the, the collection of people here. I mean, uh, it was great to, to come after Edmund because I think um, having followed his work for, for a number of years and, and talked to him in the past, you know, in the, the theme I'm talking about today, the sort of interest in, in, in thinking about secrecy from a kind of everyday perspective, like some of that has come out of his work, you know. So I think I was struck again by the image of the control house, um, sort of suburban Guantanamo, um, and, the, and the cat whose face couldn't be or wasn't revealed. <laughs> And, and so some of that um, interest in the everyday has filtered into, in, into this presentation. I'm also pleased that David Warren is here today. Um, uh, it's he who, who, who uh, collected a, a lot of the interviews, um, a large uh, body of work that I've drawn on uh, in, in, in attempting uh, this. For me, it's a sort of... Um, a venture in oral history. You know, I've got no background in oral history as a, as a method, but um, I don't think uh, that should stop us. <laughs> we should sort of uh, forge ahead. Anyway, so I, I guess my uh, taking off point for this is uh, that a lot of the uh, writing and thinking about secrecy that goes on in, in political science and international relations, and there is, as I've argued, Previously, not as much as you would think there would be, or not as much as there ought to be. But it, it kind of um, speaks about secrecy, what you could call a major key. Um, secrecy remains grand in, in the literature, either because it's encountered in the context of dramatic events, like a scandal or an accident or a conspiracy, or in relation to, to what are perceived as big structures like the state and the interstate system. So you've got you know, IR people trying to theorize secrecy in terms of models of the interstate system. Why do states keep secrets? Um, so I think that what I'm interested in is, is a kind of more minor uh, uh, secrecy uh, in, in keeping with a lot of sort of recent work in security studies and uh, in, in new secrecy research. Uh, I'm interested in, in, in the dispersed, in the minor, and um, uh, in this particular case, I'm looking to oral history as a method that can illuminate what I'm calling everyday secrecy. So I think that such a focus can deepen and extend the concern to account for practices, identities, and mediation, which a lot of people in secrecy research have begun to cultivate. And it can do this by embedding this practical turn within an account of the places, memories, routines, relations, and experiences of actors who are entangled in a variety of ways in covert worlds and activities. So I'm interested in the ordinary um, rather than the extraordinary aspects of secrets, the, the um, routine uh, rather than the exception, and the little conversations and passing remarks rather than conspiracies, uh, and the glances, gestures, feelings, and attitudes which secrecy engenders as much as and in conjunction with the formal systems by which it's organized. So I think there are obviously good reasons why secrecy research has tended towards the major and the extraordinary and the exceptional. So my point is not to reject that uh, as so much as to widen and to complicate it by calling for engagement with the minor and the everyday. 
So I'm interested in this paper in everyday secrecy in a specific context. Now, of course, you could look at everyday secrecy within the context of a hospital or a bank. Um, but I'm looking at it within something that's uh, officially sort of top secret, a securitized environment. Uh, everyday life in a top secret place. And this notion of place is very important. Now, there's a large body of work in anthropology, especially that deals with everyday secrecy in, in families, communities, workplaces, and so on. But apart from important contributions by anthropologists like Gustafson, Masco, and Freeman, um, there's very little that sort of opens up the everyday uh, experience of secrecy in, in, say, atomic weapons research facilities. And that, a lot of that has to do, obviously, with questions of access. But we could say, well, what about archives? You know, can't we use archives to look at everyday secrecy in the past, in, in declassified situations. But again, this is one of the reasons that oral history first emerges as a method in, 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 in historical research, is that archives will give you a good account, or a, a, an account, a, a account of what decision makers, politicians, planners are, are thinking, but archives not always so good at catching the sort of the everyday, the, the, the unwritten, uh, or even the unsaid, or the gestural. So we need other approaches. We need oral history in this case. Um, so one of the things that I think comes out of doing this kind of oral history work, uh, you know, we get a fuller account of secrecy um, in terms of how people in their everyday activities negotiate the sayable and the unsayable, the knowable and the unknowable, um, the visible and the invisible, how they make sense of those negotiations. It's about what Michael Tausig, uh, his name came up earlier, calls the labor of the negative. It's a term that I think this labor of the negative stresses that the various silences, denials, and opacities that we associate with secrecy are never simple uh, absences, but they're, they're, they're sustained by a sort of complex work, of sort of ongoing work of, of, of social production. Right, so everyday secrecy is typically, um, or everyday life is typically approached in terms of contexts and cases, and my case is, um, it's disappeared, is, is Orford Ness. You can see it um, here on this map of, of the UK's uh, nuclear weapons research and production estate. Um, it's the most eastern bit there on the, on the coast of Suffolk, placed near to where I grew up. Um, so, Orford Ness is a, um, a, a former secret weapons testing military research and surveillance establishment located on the East Coast. It takes its name from its peculiar uh, geographical location, a long 16-kilometer vegetated uh, shingle spit joined to the mainland by a narrow neck of land. Uh, in, the, in the, the language of the locals, it's called the island. It's not absolutely an island. I guess it's a peninsula or a spit, but it feels like an island. Um, and at the, start of, at the start of World War I, it begins to be colonized by the military. Um, and it becomes officially a prohibited place. Um, when the UK uh, Atomic Weapons Research Establishment has expanded rapidly in the 1950s, it had Aldermaston as the main site, but Orford Ness soon became an important test, uh, setting within its test program. So to the military planner, this remoteness and seclusion uh, was an asset. So for 70 years, one of the things that really interests me uh, about Orford Ness is, is, is it's what uh, the 
Uh, geographer uh, Rachel Davis calls it a palimpsest, you know, in the sense that there are many layers. There have been so many different kinds of secret military research carried out there over a period of about 70 years, you know, whether it's early work on radar, whether it's bomb ballistics, whether it's aerial photography or, or the stress testing. Of, uh, of atomic weapons or experimental over-the-horizon radar, all are sort of gathered there in the same place. You know, it's, it's partly about sunk costs, isn't it? Once you've got a place that's got, you know, the right kind of geography uh, combination of, 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 of remoteness, but also, you know, it's not that distant in, in all sorts of ways from other sites, you kind of keep using it. You keep sort of, you know, another project comes along, oh, well, well, let's put it there. So it's nice to sort of experience this, 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 the, the, these multiple layers and, and to think about the different sort of projects and, and how there's different kinds of secrets involved. So for example, Cobra Mist um, was a, a very high energy uh, experimental uh, radar project, which you know, generates really powerful electromagnetic waves. So it's not simply a question of sort of controlling access to this site or controlling who knows about it. You've also got to deal with this problem of of how do you kind of um, you know they they discover that one of the the thing that one of the problems of of, of the of the radar system was that it could interact with people's uh, pacemakers, or that it was going to interact with uh, the uh, the radar and the sensing mechanisms of, of nearby fisher uh, people. So you can't simply sort of say no no we don't want anyone to know about this. You've also got to get into the business of cover storing. So the uh, the paper I wrote with my uh, student Alex Lescom. Um, explores, you know, how, how do you, what's the work that goes into generating a cover story? So again, we think of the cover story as a relatively straightforward, you know, oh, well, we'll just give them a, an account that sounds plausible. But it's a, there's a sort of, there's a real complexity and irreducibility to the cover story. In other words, the cover story is a, is a sort of interesting object of research in its own right. You know, you can do a whole sociology of the cover story, which is what we kind of started to try to do. So after uh, uh, 1993, this place had been uh, decommissioned and abandoned. It was bought by the National Trust, um, who took a keen interest in it, uh, both because of its unique environmental profile, largest vegetated shingle spit in Europe, but also um, for its uh, historical um, uh, significance. And uh, for the managers of the National Trust, and I think it was quite a controversial move to expand from, you know, move out of the country homes and, and castles kind of area that they were more familiar into sort of purchasing um, uh, the ruins of an atomic weapons <laughs> research facility, which was, you know, massively polluted and, 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 and full of unexploded ordnance. And, and also, I think they acquired it in a sort of um, state of opacity. It's not like the, the, the Ministry of Defence was sort of saying, here are all the things that you're kind of getting yourself into. The, 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 a lot of its uh, uh, records, a lot of its, especially the, the techno-scientific stuff, remains uh, classified to this day. So one of the things that's happened with the National Trust taking it over is that a, a variety of measures, uh, steps, outreaches to document memories and recollections uh, from former employees. Uh, many have returned to Orfordness as visitors because National Trust opens the, the site for, th I think, three months of the year uh, in the summer. So visitors come back, some of them former workers. Uh, and, and so 
They've built up a, a, an archive of, of, of interviews, and, and David here has, has done a, a large number of those interviews, and before him there was a, another researcher who also did some, uh, c collected some of this work. And it's, it's, it's some of that, uh, some of those interviews that I've been fortunate to be able to draw upon uh, for this work. Um, so although the, the main, aim of the, main aim of the paper is to advance secrecy research, it can also be read as a contribution to knowledge about its case, orphanedness. Because I think most scholarly writing about orphanedness examines it from the point of view of a kind of aesthetics of military ruins and violent landscapes. Um, I'm more interested in it in terms of a kind of social history of, of what you know, was going on during its active working life, less about sort of its, its status as a, as a ruins today. So let me finish um, or the second part of the presentation by sort of outlining what I see as four um, contributions that, that a focus on everyday secrecy can make. And I'll try to illustrate each one with, with some little anecdotes and, and, and vignettes drawn from this uh, uh, archive of, of interviews. So I think, first of all, a concern with the everyday uh, captures the differential ways in which secrecy is experienced. In particular, it promises insight about the ways in which relations of gender, profession, status, race and class might modulate experiences of secrecy. So I think in security studies, secrecy is often imagined in terms of spatial metaphors, and I know Oliver's written about this, uh, like the veil and the backstage. And the problem with these kind of metaphors is they, again, they, they imply a kind of binary division into insiders and outsiders. So while that kind of binary might have an intuitive appeal, uh, what we see with Orford Ness is that they fail to do justice to the rich and varied social landscape of secrecy. Um, here was the, I think, the uh, appeal that David put out or, uh, in conjunction with the National Trust to recruit um, uh, some of the interviewers, uh, interviewees. Um, yeah, so what um, <clears throat> they failed to do justice, this sort of binary fails to do justice to the, to the rich and varied social landscape. So here we have an internationally renowned aeronautical engineer, uh, John Allen. Um, and you know, the way in which he talks about secrecy and his experiences is very different from what, um, say, a typist or a film analyst or a security guard remembers and recalls uh, about secrecy. You know, John Allen talks, for example, about um, having a large safe in his, in, in his office and how you know, at the end of each day is to carefully put his papers in his safe. But of course, not everyone on the island uh, has a safe. Um, so, for example, um, I think I've had to change the names in a lot of cases, uh, but Jenny, a film analyst, um, talks on the tape in ways that kind of reminded my, my, of my mother. She says, oh, well, yeah, of course, there was a lot of secrecy, but to be honest with you, I thought a lot of that was just a fuss about nothing, you know, sort of, <laughs> just sort of pickiness, and, and I can't see the sense of it. But, you know, she went along with it, but, you know, sort of felt that it was just... Uh, uh, interference. Or, or another of the interviewees, uh, uh, a woman says, yes, people were searched uh, coming on and off the island, but she says, I was never searched. Uh, and I think the fact that they didn't have any female police officers maybe contributed to the fact that, that she'd never been searched. So little details like that, I think, are, are quite fascinating. 
So secondly, a focus on the everyday opens up questions not just of diverse social experiences, but also practice. How do actors perform secrecy at work, or when they go home, or when they socialise with friends and neighbours? So I think, again, when secrecy is theorised on the scale of, of, of states or in terms of the usual metaphors of veil, it appears almost as a fait accompli. Um, and when agency does appear, it's often, again, in dramatic ways, like the whistleblower or the spy. But what about this ordinary production of secrecy, the sort of inconspicuous psychological, cultural, sociological, technical work that goes into concealment? So it's not just about policy decisions, it's not just about bureaucratic or executive acts, it's not just about technologies. It's about how people manage, you know, what they think they can say and what they can't say, and how they feel about that. How they observe the limits of secrecy, but at other times maybe transgress them a little bit. And what kinds of feelings, what kind of emotions uh, surround that sort of boundary work, you might call it. Um, you know, I have a quote from somebody that we've renamed as Kevin. Um, he worked as a radio receiving technician. He says, I had a communication receiver at my home at the time. I used to listen to shortwave transmissions, amateur radio particularly, and I could pick up this staccato woodpecker pulsing and knew that it was coming from Orford Ness, and he himself is working at Orford Ness. I remember going back into work one morning and meeting one of the American engineers. I can't remember his name. I said, I've been hearing this noise on the shortwave bands, and I think it's coming from this transmitter. And he sort of looked at me and said, oh, really? He didn't say much more. You might say it was no comment. So just that sort of interaction with the American engineer and his sort of gestures and what he doesn't say um, communicates to, to Kevin that really he's doing something that he probably shouldn't be or certainly shouldn't be talking about it if he is doing it. Third, I think we learn more about mood, feeling and emotion when we approach secrecy from the angle of the everyday. Um, and a focus on the everyday invites a certain, I would say, de-dramatisation of secrecy, which I see as a necessary counterweight to the way secrecy so often appears in popular and political culture. And I think as a number of theorists like uh, Jody Dean, Bratich, Claire Birchall, um, have argued for some time, publics are fascinated with the secret activities of the state and the exposure of secrets plays a powerful role in the dynamics of public politics. So in these settings, secrecy is often associated with feelings of suspicion, scandal, malice, danger and intrigue. Yet in everyday life, secrecy can be about play, joy, humour and a range of emotions that are far less dramatic or awesome. So it's this ordinary and rather banal play of feelings that I want to highlight in drawing attention to everyday secrecy. It's not because the association with conspiracy and malice and ill intentions is incorrect, but just because it's rather one-sided and limiting. So I think if concealment and disclosure was only about the bad, if it were lacking in charms and pleasures and little nothings, as Jeff Hoisman has called it, then concealment would surely be much harder for any organisation to accomplish or for its uh, employees to live with. So I think that one of the things that happens with the way that, you know, that, because there's been a, a whole lot of artists really fascinated with orphanness and they've done all sorts of very interesting interpretive work, as have bloggers and what people, uh, Luke Bennett calls bunkerologists, you know, people who just 
visit various kinds of bunkers and abandoned spaces and document them and blog them and photograph them. Um, I think what happens in, in, in most of those accounts, though, is that the, the, the places become kind of aestheticized as mysterious. Um, and, you know, this is one of the, the work of Louise Wilson. It's one of the most interesting, uh, in, in my view, uh, works on Orford. Because precisely because, I mean, again, to, to, to echo what Oliver's uh, going to be talking about, it, it's dealing with sound. You know, it's sort of exploring Orford as a soundscape. And she calls it a record of fear. And one of the projects was to put a, a choir uh, singing Elizabeth, Elizabethan madrigals. Uh, she put the choir in the, um, the round um, centrifuge where the, the bombs were spun around. So she's kind of repurposing that kind of concrete space and exploring its oral qualities. But again, all of these um, artistic uh, projects tend to sort of dramatis uh, dramatize the place, make it erratic, make it mysterious. And again, uh, I think that one of the things that, that comes out of the interviews is a very different feeling of secrecy. It's not about sort of, uh, something mysterious or ruined uh, or, or elegiac. Uh, uh, but, but again, it's it, it suggesting that there are multiple layers of secrecy, uh, that secrecy is a multiplicity. Right, lastly, um, I think this perspective of the everyday offers a fine-grained appreciation for the materiality of secrecy, and often in quirky and unexpected ways. I'll just give a, a little example. Uh, going back to Jenny, the, the woman who uh, somewhat apologetically says that as a worker she didn't think too much about secrecy, uh, thinking it was just a fuss about nothing, uh, which is a dreadful thing to say, she says. But then she also says, the only time I worried about be things being secret is when we would come across documents, or produced documents actually, that said top secret atomic, and especially the ones that said UK eyes only. Because when the Americans came, you even had to lock up the stamp that says UK eyes only. So I think that remark is wonderful, not just for the sort of insight regarding the secrecy of a humble little tool of secrecy, this stamp. It's also the way in which this little classification tool and the routine of concealment which surrounded the tool gives expression to the much larger forces and contradictory relationships. In this case, the play of trust and distrust, collaboration and competition that characterize the Anglo-American special relationship within the field of atomic weapons policy. Um, Perhaps in question time, because I've, I've gone on for 20 minutes now, so I'm going to stop, but uh, in another paper, the paper I wrote about Cobra Mist, I talked about the idea of a twist, um, which kind of builds on Hannah Arendt's uh, notion that, you know, Hannah Arendt's very eventful in the way she, she examines things. So when she writes about the Pentagon Papers, she says, you know, we only... The Pentagon Papers really only happened um, because of a quirk, because there happened to be a very accurate record of the Vietnam War that the security services had been collected, which could be contrasted with the completely falsified record that um, uh, McNamara and his associates generated. So she says it's only because of that quirk that, you know, the, the, the exposure was able to happen. Or in our case with Cobra Mist, it was only really because of the quirk or not the quote, but the fact that it was an American-UK collaboration and, and the Americans took a very different relationship or attitude about secrecy to the British. And so that, in turn, gave rise to um, 
tension and, 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 and conflict between the two sides, which in turn generated a big paper trail, which the archive, you know, so in the archive, we could see this paper trail that had sort of proliferated. And so that paper trail, in a sense, then becomes a condition of possibility for us to study secrecy better, because it means there's something now very discursive, something richly textual about it. So. I think this, one can say some, something similar about these, these, these interviews that David has been able to do, that, that there's something, there's a bit of a quirk there. You know, the fact that the National Trust happened to take over the place, the fact that it was then interested in getting uh, uh, accounts from uh, uh, veterans, the fact that lots of veterans were keen to come black, all of those things combined to sort of produce or allow this kind of discursive flourishing uh, of, of people talking about their experiences. Not every place has such a kind of record or is capable of generating such a record. So in a sense, when we research secrecy, we're dealing with, a, you know, in some ways a rather sparse terrain and we have to sort of seize on those places where where proliferation happens, where, where, where things become thickly kind of discursified. So I know we talked a lot about absences in the first session. I think we also need to talk about those sort of very eventual, very, um, um, what's the word, contingent circumstances under which you know, there's a sort of proliferation of discourse and we as, 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 as secrecy researchers, uh, researchers can, can seize on it. Thank you.